banded together by a mutual yearning for the more simplistic times and random fun of the comic books of yesteryear. Alec Berry and Scott Gardner now travel back. Back to the bins! Welcome back to Back to the Bins. I'm one of your co-hosts, Scott Gardner. And my name is Alec Berry. How's it going, man? It's going good. It's it's going. Cool. It's we, going. We are back for episode number 10 of Back yes. to the Bins, and this time around, you are in the spotlight. You go first. I like when I'm in the spotlight. I can handle it. It's all good. <laughs> but yes, we are back this week, and my book this week is a kind of a special find for me uh, in the bins. Uh, it's it's really kind of just a cool book to say I own. It's, you know, I don't know how really important or if it's really even worth any money, but to me personally, it's kind of a really cool book to own. And uh, I'm just going to read the cover. When Gods Walk the Earth, The Eternals, issue number one. I'm pretty pumped to own this. First appearance of The Eternals ever in printed format. And this is all written and created and drawn by the master, the king, Jack Kirby. And this title, the title of this issue is The Day of the Gods. And, uh, this issue, we get, we open up with really kind of just a cool page of like an old Aztec temple and, uh, a statue. And, uh, we have a group of, uh, scientists and archaeologists and leading, they're all led by a character named as Ike Harris. And, uh, they're excavating this tomb, which is known as the Tomb of the Gods. And they're kind of following a, uh, lost prophecy of uh, the Aztec gods and trying to uncover some sort of secret maybe behind the origins of man. Uh, it seems that this Ike Harris character uh, kind of knows a little bit more than you know, any other human may. I just, <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't mean to make fun, I just gotta stop you. It's Icarus. It's Icarus. He's named after the, the oh, character but, but, in legend that like made the wings out of I know that, I know that, but in this, in, in the story, we don't know him as that yet. It's Ike Harris. Oh, it's okay, all right, I thought, I'm sorry, I thought you were <laughs> No, no. Shut up, smartass, what do you know? Okay. His name is, yeah, for now we know him as Ike, that's his first name, last name Harris, okay. and that's how we know I'm him. Not, I wasn't trying to be Mr. Smartass, <laughs> know it all. I'll it's pronounced, up. it's pronounced Ike or whatever, but um... <laughs> All right, I'll be quiet now. Fuck you, just shut up, all right? I'm talking, <laughs> all right? Uh, where the fuck was I? Um, yes, and then they're in this tomb, and they're looking for the secrets behind maybe the possible origins of man. And on the second and third page, you just get a freaking awesome two-double-page double spread of just this huge-ass Aztec statue and this tomb, and it's just in the awesome Kirby style, which I just freaking drooled over uh, for about five minutes. Uh, pass some ads. Another nice kind of big page with some more statues, and, you know, they're continuing their excavation. And uh, we finally get to Ike Harris talking about some sort of um, beacon, uh, beacon of the Eternals, which he's, some, he, he's, in, he's in a hurry to find it uh, because he's, he keeps, you know, babbling on about the Deviants and uh, them finding it and somehow getting it to it uh, first and causing a whole bunch of trouble. So, you know, as he's, you know, clamoring to find this beacon... Uh, the rest of the rest of the uh, archaeologists are kind of, you know, well, what the hell is this guy talking about? Is he crazy? What's going on? And uh, you, know, you got that going on. Uh, we come out to 
the ocean where you know this we have this fighter pilot just flying over the ocean but all of a sudden uh, his plane in the pilot himself is sucked into this big cosmic black hole that's been uh, generated by this underwater craft that is low and then you watch it as it lowers back underneath the ocean uh, into this sort of subterranean cave and we find this group known as the deviants and uh, they're also talking about the beacon that Ike was mentioning about. And uh, they're saying that they must somehow find it and protect it from the Eternals. And uh, can they can't let the Eternals use it. So they're sending out uh, a couple a couple Deviant agents to make sure that it is the beacon is secure. We go back to the Aztec Temple where Ike has is is somehow opened this portal to like uh, to get a view of the universe. And uh, he's claiming it, is, and he gives this great line of dialogue. Behold the universe, the vast home of the gods. And from there we start going into this origin of, um, you know, we learn that m- more about Ike. And then, you know, Scott, the character, we learn his name isn't Ike Harris, it's Icarus. Am I pronouncing that right, Scott? Icarus. Icarus, whatever. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. So we find out his true name and that he truly isn't human, that he is more, and that he is an eternal. And uh, he starts to give his tale of the Celestials and how they came to Earth uh, billions of years ago and sort of tampered with the way, uh, you know, evolution and maybe how the origins of man came to be. And the story is that the Celestials came down on their godship and took up the uh, apes that were roaming the Earth and ran experiments on them and created... Uh, Three different sanctions of humanity. Uh, you had the lower level, the deviants, whose species is sort of just random and uh, all over the place. They don't have a true form. Each each deviant is in a different form. It uh, doesn't have a certain look. Uh, you had the mid-level, the regular human, uh, both filled with savagery and also intellect. Kind of a nice balance. And then you had the high up, the eternal, uh, kind of on the same level, the same level of the gods. And uh, also immortal and living forever and immune to disease and, you know, all that sort of thing. Uh, more ads. We go and get a nice sort of uh, nice page where you get three panels and explains more about the differences between the Deviants, the Eternals, and uh, hum- humans. And, uh, you know, it's just more awesome artwork and it kind of gives you more of the balance and sort of the connection between all three of these species. And uh, then Ike, sort of, uh, Icarus, however, I, I gotta learn how to pronounce that. But uh, he gives, he talks about why the beacon, this beacon is so important, because uh, for some reason, we don't know why, but all the Eternals have some, uh, somehow left Earth, and for them to come back, he needs to use the beacon to summon the ship of the gods, to bring back the second coming of the Eternals. And uh, that's why the Deviants don't want it to happen, because if the Eternals come back, it's bad news for the Deviants, and they're going to get their ass whooped. That's how it goes. Uh, From there, you get the Deviant agents showing up in the Tomb of the Gods, and uh, Icarus takes off his human disguise, and we have a nice battle. There's one nice panel that I I really love, where it's just Icarus, uh, it's a side view of him just out stretching his arms, and he creates this barrier of energy just from the air molecules. Uh, it's just a really cool panel. I just that's a panel that'll kind of always kind of stick in my head. Uh, you know, you get further battle, and it just kind of leaves you with this uh, kind of cool cliffhanger where the gods, the celestials, have finally touched down on Earth, and uh, 
now all three representatives of the three sanctions of humanity are there to sort of greet and uh, see what's up with the gods. And uh, one kind of funny thing in this book was on the second to last page, the best the deviants could come up with in their weaponry to stop Icarus was shooting a towel out at him to cover him up. That's how they planned to feed him, is wrapping him in a blanket. And I just laughed at that. I couldn't help. Because this, <laughs> this, this one deviant gives, like, the greatest line. He's like, oh, here's our latest in deviant weaponry. And he just shoots this frickin' blanket at, at Icarus. And it's like, that's the best you can come up with. But I thought that was pretty funny. Uh, overall, I, I loved this issue. I love the whole idea of the Eternals. I love its, you know, the cosmic goodness of it. Uh, I love the frickin' just Jack Kirby artwork, the creative writing, uh, I, I loved everything about it. I thought it was great, and I definitely, uh, I think they have this stuff collected, so, like, definitely that would be a great, nice collected edition to get to, to read all of this, because I think this is just, I think it's just so, it's so cool. Uh, it's always kind of, the Eternals are always kind of held as Marvel's uh, new gods, but I, I don't, I think in the Origins they're they're quite different, am I correct? I'm not exactly sure on what the new gods' origins are. Uh, I know it goes back to Apocalypse and uh, New Genesis, but this, the Eternal seems sort of different from that, from what I know. So, I just, all around, I think it's a great idea. I love the artwork. I love the zaniness and the cosmic uh, effect of it. And uh, I just thought it was a great, fantastic, fun issue. I think there can be a lot of parallels drawn between... uh you know some of the characters in both the Eternals and the New Gods, but I mean they're they're different enough to where I don't think you know you can say outright that oh all he did was just you know duplicate his formula with the New Gods over at Marvel and that that's who the Eternals are. I mean you know there's certain archetypes or whatever that are very similar because the if I remember correctly I think the the Eternals had kind of a, a high father figure. You know, in their in their mythos too, and stuff like that, and in Icarus to me always seemed very much like, uh, oh, who was the guy in the New Gods, Light Ray or whatever his name was. But I, you know, beyond that, I don't think that they were you know very similar at all, really. But uh, yeah, I've heard good things about that over the years, but I I don't know that I've ever read any of it at all. I'm you know, I'm I'm one of these people. I'm very respectful of of Jack Kirby and everything he brought to comics and everything like that. But at the same rate, could never really call myself a fan or anything. I I don't know if it's just I don't know. I don't know what it is about his stuff. Really, I, I like a lot of his earlier stuff, but then some of his you know by the time I was getting into comics, you know, he was kind of at the tail end of his career and not always putting out you know the the very best stuff he ever did. So. By my first exposure being some of his weaker stuff, I, I think that's always kind of colored my my perception of him, and I, I couldn't, you know, it, it took me a long time to really be able to go back and, you know, find the value in the stuff and really come to appreciate it, you know. But it wasn't something I, I came right into comics with, if you know well, what I mean. One of one of the things I found interesting about it was in this issue, uh, Kirby also wrote like a letter about why he was doing the book. And uh, one of his reasons was because, you know, in in this in our universe, there's all these big questions about, you know, where we come from, why we're here, such and such. 
And this, he explained this book is kind of his answer to it in a comic book fashion. And uh, when I was reading this, I also thought about when you and Chris, Chris Honeywell did that um, uh, Ancient Astronauts episode on Two <laughs> True Freaks. Because you guys even kind of brought up the idea, one of the theories was, uh, you know, aliens sort of um, coming to Earth and, you know, maybe doing this great experiment with humanity. And, it, it's it, you know, it's the same thing in the Eternals with the gods coming here and playing their experiment. And I drew that kind of uh, connection between that. I thought it was really interesting. Well, what, and, uh, what year is this book? Uh, I believe it is 19... Yeah, 1976. Yeah, see this? This was right in that era when things like uh, Chariots of the Gods and stuff like that was really big. I mean, that was, it was a huge phenomenon in the 70s. I couldn't give you like the exact year or whatever, but it was a big deal where that kind of caught on, that idea of, you know, ancient astronauts and, and that sort of thing. You know, the whole thing with Van, Von Daniken in the, in the, uh, chariots of the gods and all that. It was, uh, you could almost call it a cult, really. It, it became almost like a cult following for some people. And, you know, I'd, I'd be interested to, to find out more of that when it comes to the Kirby angle. Did he really believe it? You know, did, was he really one of these people that got, you know, converted for lack of a better word, you know, that, that came to really, you know, either believed it or, or saw, you know, some, uh, some believability in it or something like that. Because, you know, don't forget that Kirby also did the, uh, the adapt, the comic adaptation and eventual series that spun out of, um, 2001 A Space Odyssey. And that's a lot of what 2001 was about, was about, you know, aliens tinkering with you know primal humans and basically setting you know humanity on the course to where they became modern man i mean that's a lot of what that movie's about for like the first what like 45 minutes or whatever you know if i don't know if you've ever seen that movie but that's basically what it is you know it's it starts out with you know these like i don't know if that they're quite supposed to be apes but there's some form of subhuman and, you know, how they're, you know, eking out this meager existence. And then suddenly this alien object appears before them, the monolith. And suddenly they get smart and they figure out how to kill each other and how to, you know, how to evolve. And then, you know, it snaps to like, you know, you know, what what then was a slight projection into the future, into the year 2001, you know, with spaceships and going to the moon and all that kind of thing. And, you know, so... Very similar themes as far as, you know, man being tinkered with, you know, uh, you know, in, a, in an evolutionary sense. So I, I'd be very interested if, you know, if there's anything on record anywhere of, you know, Kirby's real feelings about that. You know, did he, did he buy into it or was that just something he, you know, said in the preface of this or whatever, you know, to, to sell more books and cash in on the whole Von Daniken thing? You know, I'd be very interested to find that out. I think that's an interesting angle. Definitely. <laughs> now that I'm kind of thinking about the pronunciation, wouldn't it be Icarus? Because I mean, in the, in the, <laughs> this is just going to be stupid, but in the book, you know, it's it's Icarus, and then they say run the two names together, which would be Icarus. I mean, it could. There may very well be you know more than one way to pronounce it. I, I mean, I've always heard Icarus, but I mean, there may very well. I mean, because there's other uh, you know 
uh, you know, mythological figures and and you know, historical figures and and liter you know, literary figures and stuff that you know are, are pronounced uh, like uh, Orion. You know, I've heard Orion pronounced Orion, and I've heard heard it as Orion. So you know, I, I guess you know, it depends on who you ask or or you know what what authorities giving you what version or whatever. But I've always heard it as Icarus. That's that's how I heard the story of you know whatever that I don't know what what mythology that comes from but you know of the guy who fashioned you know the wings out of whatever it's like paper and wax or whatever and flew too close to the sun you know that that whole legend that's where that name comes from that i always heard it as icarus so but it could very well be icarus too or icarus or whatever but it's interesting i'm going with icarus i think that's (laughs) that's that's my that's my preference I well, it's a, it's a comic book, and it's written by the uh, you know by the king. So go go by the king's pronunciation, I guess. All hail! All right, your turn, Scott. All right. Ah, this is one I've been itching to get to. This is, <clears throat> excuse me. This is from. Let's see my notes here. This is from January. We're going back to January 1975 for this one. This is Marvel Comics The Defenders number uh, 19 cover on this one. I had to look this up because I could not find any signature on it at all. And according to the source, I found the the uh, cover on this is by Gil Kane with inks by Joe Sinnott. I can see the inks in there, but I still don't quite see the uh, Gil Kane in there. So I hope I'm not being uh, steered wrong on that. Anyway, art on this particular in, uh, issue on the interior is by Sal Buscema, and uh, the inks are by Klaus Jansen, who, uh, you know, in later years, when, when I became more familiar with him, you know, I discovered him probably right around the time he was doing, like, his Daredevil stuff, always seemed like a very heavy-handed inker, very, you know, stiff lines and that whole, you know, like how he was on the later Frank Miller stuff, but... The inks in this, I mean, the art just all around is just beautiful. I mean, that was the big thing that struck me about this right from the, the opening splash page. It's just the beautiful, beautiful art. You know, a nice uh, nice marriage of the two styles here. Original cover price on this was a whopping 25 cents. So anyway, we start right off. Oh, uh, by the way, the, uh, the uh, writing... Uh, chores on this it was scripted by chris claremont you know later of uh, x-men fame with uh from a plot by len ween this is a story called doom ball we start out with a uh, really nice splash page of the defenders which consist in this issue of the incredible hulk nighthawk um, dr strange and kind of a tag along power man Looking over the shoulders of the um, the wrecking crew, and we've got the wrecker, Thunderball, Bulldozer, and uh, the other dude. I can't remember what his name is. I'll think of it here in a minute. Anyway, Thunderball is holding a casing to a gamma bomb and shouting, "It's gone!" And apparently, we're we're coming into kind of the middle of a story here. The first part I'm not privy to, but in the in the recap that we get, basically there was a fight going on with the event with the uh, defenders that came to a screeching halt when uh, Thunderball opened this casing and d- discovered that the gamma bomb uh, was missing out, out of the inside of it. 
And we get a really nice recap of the origin of Thunderball, who I've always thought was kind of an interesting villain. You know, he was developed really well in the, uh, you know, years and years later in the uh, third uh, Avengers series. There was a really good um, storyline with him. You know, you discover that he's actually like really smart and, you know, it's like a super genius and all this they give a little bit of this in, in the recap of his origin that he's basically, you know, he, uh, what he calls himself the Black Bruce Banner, basically. And he finds a way to basically miniaturize uh, Bruce Banner's gamma bomb invention. He, he finds a way to basically transistorize it and make it a, a tiny little, like a, almost like a thermal detonator from, uh, from Star Wars, just this tiny little bomb. And he takes it to the uh, people that he works for. You know, he wants to, uh, you know, have it have it marketed or whatever. They basically screw him out of the whole thing. They they steal his invention. They claim that you know any work that he's done for them on company time on company property belongs to the company, and they don't owe him anything. Which of course you know really pisses him off, and he decides you know he's going to sneak back in there and he's going to steal his invention. And so he does this. He gets busted by security. They chase him all over the place, and they end up, for some reason, they all end up in a steel mill, which is a part of the story I don't quite understand. Maybe there was a steel mill within the facility he worked in. I don't know. But anyway, they wind up in this big steel mill facility, and the way that it's drawn with these gantries and these great big huge vats of molten whatever actually looks, it reminded me a lot of uh, the Joker's origin, you know, how he fell into this vat. Kind of a similar thing happens here. They shoot at uh, at Thunderball, and he drops the gamma bomb, and it was encased in a uh, an adamantium casing. So even though he drops it into a vat of molten steel, he knows that it won't be destroyed. So what he decides to do, he's just going to bide his time. He's going to find out where this uh, molten steel, you know, what it gets made into, and where it goes. And then he'll just go retrieve it later. So he finds out that it gets uh, used in the construction of some uh, some skyscrapers for Richmond Enterprises. So he just decides to go and knock these buildings down and reclaim his uh, his gamma bomb. So that's where we're at at this point. You know, when the uh, the flashback winds up, and Doctor Strange says, "Well, you know, seeing as how this is a uh, you know a bomb." It shouldn't be too hard to come up with some sort of a device that can track the unique radiation signature of it. You know, the uh, the wrecking crew, they like this idea. So they basically steal it, and they all ambush the defenders and knock them all cold, including, I might add, the Incredible Hulk that gets swatted by the wreckers. Yep. He gets swatted by the wreckers' uh crowbar and knocked unconscious and i just i just have to point this out because i say take that all you people that that really believe that the incredible hulk could beat superman i don't think so you never see Superman. he's calling you out that's scott's calling you out right damn it you never see superman get swatted in the head with a crowbar and knocked unconscious but it happens to the hulk so eventually the Hulk, you know, he comes around, he wakes up the rest of the uh, the defenders, and they all, you know, kind of shake off the uh, beat down that they got. And about this time, as they're all regaining their wits, a, a couple of uh, 
cops run up and they're going to bust the defenders for, you know, whatever destruction got caused in this big fight and everything. And uh, I don't know a whole lot about Doctor Strange, never really cared for the character much, but there's a great panel where you actually see him get kind of pissed off. And he uh, he casts a spell over the cops and kind of puts them into a like a hypnotic state while they make their getaway. And, uh, and then we get a great couple of panels of just, you know, here's the Defenders. Not only are they, like, one of the weirdest, I mean, they were always, you know, always advertised as, as the Marvel non-team. You know, they're not really supposed to be a team at all. They're just always kind of just thrown together or whatever. But, you know, here you've got what's basically this team of just really oddball characters all thrown together. Some wacky costumes. You know, you got Doctor Strange and his bizarre look. You've got Nighthawk, who's got a really strange thing with the big red wing cape or whatever it's supposed to be. You got the Hulk, who's basically, you know, a big green naked guy with these, you know, nasty ripped up pants. And they're just strolling down the street, you know, through through this, like, really run down part of town. It's just hilarious to me to see these guys just casually walking down, you know, a New York street and nobody's really paying them any attention whatsoever. It just cracks me up. They get accosted by this bum who's basically, bum, you know, wanting to bum some money off of him for, uh, for coffee or whatever. And, uh, the Hulk's wanting to smash the guy, but, uh, Dr. Strange talks him out of it. And Dr. Strange, you know, again, you know, with, with the, with the short temper here, and he, he actually like steals, he, he uses his powers to like teleport this like giant gourmet dinner from someplace. He just says the plaza. He says, I don't think the plaza will miss one gourmet dinner. So, I mean, basically he just steals this dinner for this bum and, and puts it right in the middle of the street so the guy can eat. I just find this very strange. Like I said, I don't know a whole lot about Dr. Strange, but that's just, you know, it, he, he just stole food for this guy. So. It's Robin Hood politics. Yeah, there it's you like- go. It's, uh, yeah. it's, I don't know whether that's, you know, really quite. I think, I, I think that's broke. justified. Yeah. You think so? Yeah, I mean, come on. It's not like he's eating it himself. He's like giving it to a hungry guy. I think that's justified. Yeah, but you don't know. I mean, this, this dinner could have been laid out for like, you know, some, some benefit for, you know, it could have been like that Hosea Williams, like feed the hungry or something like that. You know, I don't know. Doc Strange doing the scene. <laughs> I give props to Doc Strange. It's all right. It just cracks me up. Yeah. So they're walking along, and uh, suddenly uh, this little kid runs up, and he he recognizes out of the group. He recognizes Power Man. You know, this is uh, where are they at? There. Oh, okay, they're in Harlem. So he's like, isn't Harlem where Power Man used to operate out of? Wasn't he like the, the hero uh, yes. of Harlem or something like that? I think I think so. I so think the, so. You know, so the kid, you know, he's like enamored with Power Man. He runs up and he's begging for uh, for Power Man. He basically ignores the rest of the group. He's begging for Power Man's help. You know, you gotta come quick. You know, some, some super goons are smashing up our clubhouse. And, you know, he describes the situation to, uh, to the defenders, basically, what's going on. You know, that these guys came in and, you know, they're, they're de- making demands. And, you know, because nobody knows what they're talking about, you know, they just started smashing up the place and he doesn't know what's going on. So the defenders, you know, they, they get directions and they run off. And there's a panel of the kid standing, you know, with his, with his mitt. You know, he's got a, a, baseball mitt on and he's tossing his ball in the air watching the defenders run off to uh go uh you know defend his friends and uh and bust up this fight in the clubhouse great great couple of panels of uh the hulk basically telling you know the defenders you know stand back hulk will take care of this 
he runs into the boys club and there's a three panel thing where you see him go in then you see a, just a shot of the club and then you see another shot of the hawk being just like smashed out through the wall and he lands in a in a pile and he gets up really good panel of uh, nighthawk coming over to check on him he's like you know hawk are you okay and he's like whoop sorry i asked and the hawk at this point is just super pissed off so he smashes back in and he's determined that's it I'm just going to put the serious hurt on all these guys. And, uh, and a major fight breaks out. You know, the Hulk smashing the wrecker and, uh, Nighthawk takes down Bulldozer. Power Man takes down the other dude. I still can't remember what the hell his name is. Who is this other guy in the, in the wrecking crew? I still can't remember his name. Is it Pile Driver? Uh, it's Pile Driver. I can't remember, but there's this one other guy that he's not always with the team, so I can't always remember his name, but anyway. Great sequence where they're just trashing each other and the building in the, in the, you know, in the resulting, uh, melee here. And, you know, suddenly, uh, Dr. Strange hollers at them, you know, you gotta stop, you know, you're gonna bring the building down on top of all these kids. So, you know, this, this is the kind of one of those comic book cliches that just cracks me up where, you know, you've got civil villains, you know, where you, you've got like, uh, civic minded villains where they actually care about, you know, whether they're going to kill a bunch of kids or not. They decide to just take the fight outside, which is just ridiculous. You know, they're bad guys. You know, what do they care if they knock a building down on the people that they're, you know, that they're fighting and they're, you know, five minutes ago, they were going to kill these guys anyway before the defenders showed up, but they decide to take the fight outside. Great. A couple of pages of uh, Thunderball versus the Hulk. And at first, Thunderball is just owning the Hulk. You know, he's got that giant wrecking ball thing that he swings around, and he's smashing the Hulk and hitting him in the head, and it's just great. And the Hulk just gets madder and madder till finally Thunderball swings the ball at him, and he actually just snaps it right out of the air and crushes it with one hand. And then he belts uh, Thunderball through a wall, and I don't think you see him again for the rest of the issue, so I don't know. He probably landed in New Jersey or something. He hit him so hard. And uh, Nighthawk takes out Bulldozer by uh, snapping his uh, flying harness onto him and then sending him sky high where it peters out and then he just plummets to the ground and gets knocked unconscious. Uh, Luke Cage, Power Man, he takes out the last guy knocks him through a wall. So then it's down to just the Wrecker with his crowbar and Doctor Strange and they get it in basically a tug of war for the, for the crowbar. And... Uh, Doc Strange finally defeats him by just creating like a feedback loop that just zaps the wrecker unconscious. And then uh, he uses his powers and he teleports the crowbar into like a, another dimension. And I'm going to have to do some research and follow this up. I'm just curious how in the world uh, the wrecker was able, ever able to get his uh, crowbar back. I don't know if it comes back to him like a, like a Mjolnir kind of thing or what happens, but... Uh, you know, as, as this story ends up, you know, he doesn't have his crowbar anymore. So I'm just curious how he ever got it back. So, you know, the kids all run out to thank the defenders for, uh, you know, for saving the clubhouse and all that. In the meantime, Doc Strange is saying, you know, look, these guys were here. They were looking for a bomb. You know, do you, do you know anything about this? Do you know where this bomb is? You know, was it ever here and all this? And uh, when they describe what the thing looks like, they suddenly realize that uh, 
their friend, you know, the one that told the defenders to go to the clubhouse in the first place, the ball he was playing with wasn't a ball at all. It's actually the gamma bomb. So they run back down the street, you know, the direction that they came from where the kid was. They find the kid standing there, and he's tossing the ball into his glove and everything. And Doctor Strange freaks out. He runs up. He snatches the ball out of the air. And uh, he realizes that it's too late. The thing's already ticking. It's going to go off any second. So everybody's freaked out. You know, here's this gamma bomb in the heart of the city, and it's going to go off and kill everybody. So the only thing he can think to do is he uses the eye of Agamotto, and he calms down the Hulk to where the Hulk reverts to Dr. Bruce Banner, who originally invented the gamma bomb. And he basically begs for Banner's help. You know, you've got to defuse this thing. You know, it all comes down to you. You know, millions of people will die if you don't deactivate this thing. So Banner's all freaked out and nervous, and he's fighting a transformation because while he did invent the gamma bomb, he doesn't know anything about this miniaturization technology that uh, Thunderball used to make the thing so small. So he's only vaguely familiar with this thing that he's trying to deactivate. And just a, a great, great series of panels that, you know, just really beautiful of showing like the growing tension on Banner's face. You know, he's, he goes from kind of a nervous look to by the end of it, he's, he's just freakish looking. You know, he's, he's got the clenched teeth and the gritted face and the big eyes and just, you know, sweat pouring down his face. And he's got like a, grayish green tinge to him because he's fighting the transformation back to the Hulk and it, it's just great beautiful beautiful art so finally of course you know he does manage to deactivate the thing and hands it back to Doc Strange which at this point I've got to divert just a moment to say you know if Doc Strange could could transport that crowbar into another dimension why didn't he just teleport this thing into the sun or something? But There'd be no story. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> we would have been deprived of those great six panels of Bruce Banner fighting the transformation. So, uh, you know, with the thing deactivated, uh, Banner's free to, uh, to finally give in to the transformation. He turns back into the Hulk, and the Hulk is uh, a little bit upset with Doctor Strange. You know, when he realizes that uh, Strange did something to him, and he asks him, you know, did you put me to sleep? You know, he asks uh, Strange, you know, did Magician put Hulk to sleep? And, you know, basically uh, to save himself from getting an ass whooping, he tells the Hulk, yes, but, you know, it, it was for a good cause. You know, you, you saved all of New York by falling asleep. You know, and this, of course, is the stupid Hulk, so he just goes, well, oh, okay. <laughs> He's good with it. And then uh, my favorite part of the whole book, I think, is the last three panels where I love Power Man. You know, I, I have always thought he was a cool character. You know, he's usually, you know, tough talk and no nonsense. But in this last three panels, he is just a whiny little bitch. He's, he's pissed because he was hired, I guess, to actually defend the uh, the buildings, the Richmond buildings from the wrecking crew. And since those buildings got trashed and everything, and even though he helped, you know, the defenders track down the bomb and save the city and blah, 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 he won't get paid now. So at the end of it, he's, so, you know, there's a great panel of him just kind of walking away from the defenders. And he's saying, you know, you know, I'll tell you what, you know, next time if you need my help, I'm not home. And I'm just like, it's just great. I just had to laugh like, oh, you, 
whiny bastard. You know, you just you saved all these people. You know, I mean, take take satisfaction from a job well done. So you didn't earn your twenty dollars or whatever. You know, just just shut up and be happy that you know you're a hero. Take a take a hero's reward. You know, but it was a great issue. Beautiful art and. uh you know, I'm not terribly uh, familiar with the Defenders. I've only ever read just a smattering. But uh, this was enough to whet my appetite because it was just, you know, everything you and I, you know, talked about, you know, that, that, that this show should be, you know, just good old fun comics. And this was just a hell of a lot of fun. You know, it, the story wasn't particularly deep or anything, but the art was beautiful, and it just, the story moved, it had great action, and, and goofy, wacky characters, and I, I just, I had a blast with it, I, I would love to read more Defenders if they're all like this. <laughs> I need to, I need to get one of the Essentials, because I think they have all that stuff in the Essential format, mm-hmm. and start reading into that, because that does sound like the great read, and I also think... Didn't Keith Giffen do like a recent miniseries or something maybe a couple years ago with the Defenders? I think he did. I don't know uh, about recent, but I know that the uh, up until I read this issue, the uh, the only Defenders I was terribly familiar with was right, I want to say it was like in the 50s, maybe 60s of the Defenders. Keith Giffen had a, a lengthy run. On defenders that I read, and uh, you know he was the artist. I don't know. I can't remember if he wrote it or not, but he was definitely the artist. I remember Moon Knight was in it for a little bit. Well, I don't remember go. a lot about it, but it was fantastic stuff. I mean, really, really good. A lot of fun, and just you know, great art. I've always been a Keith Keith Giffen fan, but I, I'm a Keith Giffen fan of the older Giffen. You know, like when when he was first starting out, up you know, right up when he did like Legion of Superheroes and stuff. You know, like basically when he was making his bones. You know, the, that's the stuff of his I really like best. And his Defender stuff was just wild, man. It was uh, just beautiful, beautiful art on that stuff. So yeah, I mean, I I, I want to seek more of it out now. I, I know there's at least three uh, three volumes of the Essentials that I think goes up through like number sixty or something like that. The, those are the ones yeah. I've seen anyway. The the whole thing may even be out by now. I'm not even sure. But I think I think there was like I I know when I first got into comics there was like a mini series coming out. So that that would have been around oh five or oh six because I remember there was this great cover of just like Doc Strange, the Silver Surfer, uh, Hulk. Some other character, but they're all like standing back to back on the cover, and it, it looks pretty comical. And I, I, I know it was only a couple years ago. I think for some reason I keep thinking Geffen was the writer on it, but I'm, I'm not sure. Well, I know that they've had several, you know, since the end of the the initial Defenders book, you know, because they they mutated and they went into that whole new Defenders thing where they had like the Angel and the Beast and Iceman and all those characters. And they got away from, you know, the, this original core of like uh, the Hulk and Doctor Strange and Namor and and Nighthawk and all those guys. But since those days, you know, over the years, there there have been several times where there has either been like a reunion because there was like a reunion story that went through some annuals. or they've had a flat out resurgence. You know, where they where they tried again because. Uh, uh, you know, your buddy uh, Eric Larson that does Savage Dragon had a short-lived... My buddy. <laughs> um, 
my buddy Eric. Oh yeah, well yeah. I mean, I know you like him and like his work and everything. He he did a Defenders series. I think it was Defenders Volume Two, if I remember right. And uh, I I don't think it ran a whole lot of issues, but the art was fantastic. I mean, it was very much. It was probably right around the time actually that that Larson was doing. You know that that Savage World storyline on Savage Dragon that you like so much, and the art for the Defenders was very much that Larson through the the, the Kirby eyeglass, if you know what I mean. It, it was it was very much that look, you know, of of Larson doing Kirby, and I mean, you know, the, his Hulk was just you know huge, and it was it was weird, you know. It was, the art was really good, and the stories were were kind of zany. You know, they they didn't take themselves very seriously, almost like a like a She-Hulk feel to it. And uh, I've got a few of those, and that that was actually some good stuff. And then there was uh, another one, like the Order, I think was the name of it. It was kind of a sort of half-assed Defenders reunion. Re, you know, uh, was that the Matt Fraction book that came out a couple years ago? Or was it older? This one, the one I'm thinking of, I think was older, and then the the uh, the the other one that was called the Order. I don't know if it had anything to do with the one I'm thinking of, because the one I'm thinking of, I think was like a mini. It was like six issues or something like that. I only ever got to read just a little bit of it. I never, I never got to finish the the thing. But yeah, they they keep, you know, every once in a while they'll they have a resurgence where they'll try to bring back the you know, the original Defenders, and it'll last for a little while, and then they'll kind of fade away again. But uh, but this classic stuff is, uh, you know, it's well-remembered by a lot of people. I've just never really gotten to read as much of it as I would have liked, but uh, I'm going to actually seek it out now because this, this was just a blast. I had a, I had a ball reading it. That's awesome. Well, we should have just even, we should have just called the show Marvel Cast or something because this was an all-Marvel <laughs> episode. But uh, that's cool because I'm a Marvel boy, so... Well, it's just you know, it's just how it works sometimes. The the whole the whole random thing, but uh, we'll, we'll we'll get the others in there. I know I've got a I've got a DC coming down the pike here, so we'll, we'll be good to go in, in future ones. It won't always be all Marvel. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with Marvel. They're there's okay nothing, too. There's nothing wrong with Marvel except for some other stuff today. But that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> Let's get out of here. All right, man. Thank you for listening. Woo! Get back. Back to where you once belonged. That wraps up another episode of Back to the Bins. If you have any sort of feedback, please email the show at backtothebins at gmail.com. All content featured within this episode is the sole property of Back to the Bins. No rebroadcasting or retransmission of this content is permitted without the written consent of Back to the Bins. Back to the Bins is an Alec Berry, Scott Gardner production, copyright 2009. Join us again next week and we will go back. Back to the Bins. And read Amazing Spider-Man, it's good. Woo!